0: We've spoken to a lot of design leaders over the course of the Design Better podcast, but this episode is the first chance we've had to speak with someone who has made the move from being an engineering leader to being a design leader. Naveen Gavini, head of design and user experience at Pinterest, spent time as an engineering manager and then as head of product engineering before taking on his current role. And he brings a unique perspective on leading design teams with him from his journey. We speak with Naveen about how they knit different disciplines together at Pinterest and explore what he's learned from scaling a team in hyper-growth. We also ask about the strategic advantage that co-founder Evan Sharp's design background has brought to the company from day one. So sit back and enjoy our interview with Naveen Gavini.
1: As a Design Better listener, we think you'll enjoy tools and weapons. It's a podcast hosted by Microsoft's vice chair and president, Brad Smith. Brad's conversations with leaders at the intersection of the promise and perils of the digital age touch on some fascinating topics, like the new AI economy and how AI is becoming a tool in the battle against hunger. On a recent episode, Brad was taken to Venice, Italy, where he connected with Eve Ubelmanhoff of Iconum, It's a startup that specializes in 3D digitization of endangered cultural heritage sites. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone capture photography and some powerful AI tools to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. How cool is that? On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, you should subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever finer podcasts are served. Naveen, thanks for joining us on the podcast. We're excited to talk to you. And maybe we could start from the beginning. You've got an interesting background. You are an engineer, and we'd like to dig into that. But first, maybe you could tell us what was life like growing up?
2: Sure. First, thanks for having me on the podcast, guys. So, growing up, I actually grew up on the East Coast, so I was born in Brooklyn, New York, and raised in New Jersey. I was raised in a town called Edison, which coincidentally is uh, where Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. It's pretty cool if you haven't been there. He still has a lab there that you can visit and see kind of all of his inventions and what he was doing back in the day. So, yeah, I mean, growing up, I had a great childhood I was really just fascinated with technology and it was the early days of computers and actually maybe not computers but computers and the internet and my parents I don't know I think they had like a Pentium 2 processor computer with a dial-up modem and it was just super exciting to me to dial into the internet at the time and and just tinker around and tinker around with both technology and the internet and eventually ended up getting into building things on the internet and That stemmed from this fascination that you can actually produce something on one side of the world, and that someone else who doesn't know you can dial into the internet and then actually see and interact with what you built on the other side. And I thought that was just so, so cool. And so at a really early age, I was actually building these websites, and I was just so fascinated with building really engaging and visual experiences that were really contradictory to the internet constraints of the time. So the pages that most people were building were really text heavy. They were really simple to download. But the pages that I was building had music, images, counters, text, uh, interactive things and all the things that you'd put on pages back then, but the things that would take so long to load. And so my web pages I think would take like a minute or two to load. But when you got to them, they were they were just really engaging, interactive and and visual. And so I was just always really fascinated with this idea of of technology and, and then using technology to build things that folks can interact with on the other end.
1: Was there someone in your family who was also into the internet? Did someone introduce you to it? Did you have that moment where you saw it for the first time?
2: No, it's weird. I don't know. Like my parents just had had a computer. My dad was pretty good. I would say like he was okay at, at computers, and I think he still gives me crap every now and then about being the person to teach me what I know about building things. But <laughs> He's probably uh, no. right. Yeah, he probably is right. And, uh, <laughs> but but it was just you know it was just kind of coming home from school and, and tinkering around and kind of just learning as I as I go. And I think that's kind of how kids learn today, which is pretty extraordinary. But that's kind of how I pick things up.
1: So what was your first website that you
2: built? Oh, gosh. I don't actually remember. I don't think it really had a clear purpose. It it was kind of all over the place. It highlighted the music I liked at the time, maybe the video games I played and I was really into. So it was a bit all over the place. But it was almost like my little place to self-express who I was to my friends and folks in school and my family. I think that was it. Looking back, I think that the funniest thing about it though is that I think all of my friends didn't even really know how to access it at the time. So, it was more of just this cool way to show off who I was to whoever who could find it.
1: And did that build relationships? Like did that make you cool in the eyes of some of your friends?
2: Well, I think for some folks they were like, "Wow, how did you do that? That's really awesome. Like I want to I want to build a web webpage too." And I think GeoCities came not too far from there and people were building all sorts of similar sites by then. It was just an interesting way to kind of put a profile online, right, of like who you were. And I think that was pre, you know, MySpace, Facebook, mm-hmm. or any of the other, you know, things we have today, like Instagram. So I thought it was just a really interesting way to kind of self-express yourself. You lucked out because you you
0: started out the Pentium 2. I remember starting out with the TRS-80 with a tape drive. It would take about <laughs> 10 minutes to load like a simple graphics program. Yeah. So, <laughs> And then so... Sort of post-early education years, what program did you study in college and what got you kind of deeper into the technical side of of computing?
2: You know, the funny story is is I took a class in high school that was around like programming, and I absolutely hated it. And I mm-hmm. actually walked away and was like, hey, this is something I never want to do again. And the reason being was that we were building these programs that were designed to be used on like the command line per se and so and you would build you know these library book checkout systems these really rudimentary types of applications that don't really have an amazing purpose but demonstrate the ability to kind of build things and so you know the thing that i just couldn't get my head around was who would actually use this like who would open up like a yeah. terminal, type in an input, and then get an output when like everyone was using graphical user interfaces. And so that leap, to me, never really was there. And it was interesting, because at the time, when you look at computer science and you looked at these different engineering disciplines, the user experience really was ignored. It was more like, hey, the algorithmic side, or how can you build something that not a lot of people see or interact with, but that is like very complex in that nature. And so it wasn't until college where I took a class, actually more as like a, a way to get an easy A in college in my in my schedule. And so, so basically at that point I ran into a professor and he taught it in a way that was more problem solving and, and in a way that was more opening to, hey, you can take these skills and apply them to not just building programs, but you can apply them to many different aspects of life and other things. And that really opened my eyes back up to this idea of engineering. And so that's kind of how I looked at it. But really the appeal was always solving problems that can have a tangible impact on, on a person and how they can interact with the end output or result of what you were building.
1: The way that you're describing your first programming experience sounds a lot like my experience with trigonometry. It just made no sense. I had no idea what this was going to be used for until I took physics. And then I realized, okay, that could be interesting. We could, we could do something cool with this. But so you went to Rutgers and studied computer science, is that right?
2: Yeah, computer science and engineering, yeah.
1: It's kind of a big leap to fiddle around on the web and build a web page that kind of shows your favorite music and video games and stuff, and then deciding, you know what, I'm going to go to college, I'm going to study this and get a degree in it. Can you talk a little bit about the tipping point where you decided, I want to focus and get a degree on this, and then maybe talk about what that experience was like at Rector's?
2: I think probably like most folks going into school, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And the most difficult thing about engineering was everyone kind of was like, oh, you should look at engineering. And I would ask people like, "What what do you do as an engineer?" Like, because I actually think there's many forms of engineering, right? You could be building bridges, you could be building buildings, you could be mm-hmm. um, doing rockets, and so nobody really actually was very specific. It was all very vague and just said, "You build stuff," and <laughs> and that's like the most vaguest definition you can give mm-hmm. to somebody. It's like, okay, well, what am I going to be building? Like, is it hard? Uh, well, I like what I'm building. Do I have a say in it? And so. You don't really know a lot. And so for me, actually, my path was probably like many other folks, I kind of followed what my friends were doing. And so you know, some Mm. of my best friends were like, hey, I'm going to go and do civil engineering or I'm going to do biomedical engineering. And that's actually the path that I initially went down. I was like, oh, that sounds really cool. And so I was really interested in the intersection of uh, medicine and engineering of just building kind of prosthetic devices or pushing Mm. forward the medical field through technology. And so that's actually... What I was originally starting out doing. And right around that same time I was taking that programming class that changed my thinking, I ended up getting a job at the university working within this small group called the OSS, which worked on the university's backend systems, webmail, and websites. And what was cool about getting this job was it was the ability to actually try out putting some of those theoretical skills learned in class into actual practical applications. And so I could see. The things that I built being used by friends, by faculty, and it was was just a really cool feeling to see that. And this made me feel like, one, hey, I can do this, and it's a ton of fun, but also that it was just so cool to see people using the net result of what you built. And so it was something that at that moment in time decided, hey, I really want to do this beyond just school.
1: It sounds like you, you were hanging out with the right friends if that's, if that's what they were into. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I had a good,
0: good group of friends. Fast forwarding a little bit into your you know, the beginnings of your professional career, it looks like you were at some more established companies like Yahoo for a bit, but then you joined Pinterest in an individual contributor role in 2012. And then, sort of paralleling the hyper growth of Pinterest, it looks like your leadership curve was very steep. So you had your first managerial role in 2014, and then you're the head of the product engineering in 2016, and now you're head of design, which we want to really dig into that some more. But maybe first you could just talk about what's your arc been like at Pinterest, and what was it like paralleling that, that hyper growth?
2: It's interesting. I, I feel like I was very, very lucky and fortunate where my interests met with people and teams and companies that just like, it was really great timing. And so when the iPhone first came out, 2007, 2008, I got really into iPhone development. And I was just captivated by this idea, if we talk about my childhood of building web pages people can interact with across the world, the idea that you can build something and put it on a physical device that somebody could actually touch and feel and uh, manipulate. That was the kind of nirvana of You know, building web pages, right? And so I was really fascinated about building things there. And so when I came to Pinterest uh, in early 2012, it doesn't sound like that long ago, seven years, but in the technology span, actually, mobile apps at that time were, I think, in their very early stages. And so many of the products that we use today, like Uber, Lyft, Pinterest, Instagram, they didn't actually exist, or they didn't have much of a user base at the time. And so when I came to Pinterest, one of the first things that I really wanted to work on was taking this amazing product for visual discovery that was primarily based on the web for collecting and saving images to mobile and make that kind of transition and leap. And so we were a really tiny team at the time. I think we were about 10 people when I joined the company. And so one of the first things I worked on for the first three to six months was taking basically what Pinterest was and how it existed on the web and bringing it to mobile and and I think you know we were really lucky and fortunate of the timing we did that and the success of the service that within a couple of weeks of us launching the applications I think we saw a dramatic shift where the majority of usage started to come from mobile versus the web and so that was a really well timed decision for the company to to make and when I started at Pinterest that was kind of what I was working on for my first few years was building the iOS app and I worked with amazing designers and engineers to kind of do that. And we built, I think, what, which was one of the, you know the foundational apps of changing how folks thought about applications on iOS. And so we introduced like this iconic two-column grid layout, which I think a lot of folks use now for visual discovery. But that was a very hard challenge, both from a design perspective but also an engineering perspective, to build that to load all those images, to download all those things over a slow internet connection, no matter where you were in the world, was really exciting. And so those were kind of early challenges that we faced, and then kind of how do you grow and scale and make those apps more robust and obviously globally more applicable to everyone. So that was the journey for a while. And then as the company scaled, I was really fortunate to kind of grow with it. And a few years ago, I was kind of leading our product engineering team, which is basically the engineering team for Everything you see on the consumer side of Pinterest, so every kind of user-facing feature, kind of rolled into there. And so I played my roles, and I see in a lot of those features. And then eventually, was really more responsible for building the teams and the processes to enable the development of those features. And so worked really closely across engineering, design, and product to really make that happen. And so spent a few years doing that. And then, if we fast forward to 2019, I transitioned into a new role leading. All of our design and user experience teams. And so, as a company, we decided to take the design team in a slightly different direction strategically. Over the years, we've seen the benefit of engineering and design working so closely together on the user experience. And so, what we decided to do is actually bring together a lot of the different functions that work closely together on the user experience. And so, we start to bring together product design, writing, research, operations, creative technologists, prototypers, engineers, all under one roof of the design team. And so what this enables us to do is really take an insight or an idea, go all the way from having that insight and idea, talking to some users, validating it, to then sketching it out, designing it, prototyping it, and even building and shipping it. And so that's the new design team here at Pinterest and the charter that we're on,
1: and I think it's really exciting. That's great. I love the idea of, of having all of that in one place. In fact, when I was leading design at MailChimp, that was a core philosophy that we had was let's try to reduce the space between these teams so an idea can fluidly be put into production very quickly. I think there's some gaps I'd like to maybe fill in there because you talked about being fascinated with iOS development and described probably a lot of individual contributor type of work. Now you've got all this under your responsibility, all these different groups. Talk about your transition from individual contributor to manager and what was that like? Did you struggle? I don't think it was a struggle. I think the the struggle for me
2: was I think maybe the classic struggle of being good at something and transitioning to something new was that in a more leadership role, your main job is to help the folks that are working on the project grow and see the solutions and kind of get to that themselves with a little bit of guidance. And mm-hmm. I think your natural instinct as a seasoned individual contributor that knows what they're doing really well and an expert in their discipline is to just go and solve that problem yourself. And so you have to resist the urge and the tendency to want to solve it to mm-hmm. and and to, to kind of Hold yourself from saying, like, hey, I could do it better and faster than this person, and really, and really push yourself to help teach them and help grow them that they can do it better than you one day.
0: Maybe you could talk a little bit more to Naveen about to me, you know, you know doing my LinkedIn slew thing, looking over your profile, that transition from being an engineering leader to being a design leader really stood out. And I know that happens occasionally, but I'm curious, like, what led to that? Obviously, you've had a lot of interest in design and visual products, but what led to that change in roles and what are some of the, kind of the things that you bring to it and some of the challenges that you face?
2: I think it is an interesting transition, and over my past year with the team so far, like I've talked to a lot of other design leaders in the industry, just to understand like more about the role, like what I should know, what I should be doing, getting to know how I should play the role, and I think all of them said the same thing, which was like, you know, that's a very unique setup you guys have going there, and I'd be really interested to kind of see how it plays out, and I think it is one that is largely predicated on my knowledge of Pinterest and the product and the company and our challenges and the teams and the structure and so so I think it is it's a unique opportunity that I think we're trying out here and we'll see kind of how it goes but I think the things that have been really exciting in terms of the possibilities that it's opened is the tighter integration between design and engineering and so for me traditionally even though i think like formally you can call me an engineer you know i've never really associated myself with being an engineer or a designer i've always just kind of thought of myself as like a builder a builder of products and a maker of things and i think that the culture that we're trying to create here at pinterest is unique in that way where from the very early days even when i started at the company we had a company value that was called knitting and and the idea was that we would be able to produce solutions that were incredibly good. They were well thought out. They were beautifully designed. They were really functional. And the reason we were able to do that is if truly the disciplines come together and work seamlessly. And I think if you've ever been in a team that has had that, it's almost this magical thing where the disciplinary lines fade away and it's almost like the designer is part engineer, the engineer is part designer, the product manager is part engineer. And, and everyone is actually kind of playing each other's roles. And the net result is that amazing product that you wouldn't have been able to do on your own. And so I think I was really fortunate to be at Pinterest through the journey where we had that those magical moments with teams and products that we've built. And I think a lot of the beautifully designed things that you've seen come out of the team over the years being in those environments and seeing what's produced those enables us to try to create that environment at a bigger scale with the engineering and design teams today and so i think that that is some of the unique things that uh, we're trying to cultivate in the culture and some of the unique things that i think i bring to the role obviously with my engineering background and then i think the other thing i would say is that there is the ability to see things a bit differently from the traditional disciplinary background. And I think that brings a set of advantages. It also brings a set of disadvantages. On the advantages side, is I think it really allows us to understand the constraints better and educate ourselves on, okay, well, we are constrained by potentially like how this product can be built, or the end requirements we need in the systems to be able to make it work. And so those can then be applied as design constraints historically like when i've worked in teams design constraints have really come out of product requirements or come out of what research says as insights but but to really think about the underlying systems and how they work and then to be able to design better solutions that work together with you know the technology that's powering the service uh, allows us to build better better net-end solutions. And so I think that's that's really interesting. On the disadvantages side, I have to be really honest with myself every day that I didn't come from a formal design background. And so what that means is that when I look at a process or a way we work, I might have a very different idea of how to ideally do that. But I need to balance that with really understanding why we do things the way we do. And so that sometimes takes a little bit longer to do. But I would say I have such a phenomenal world-class team of experts that, that have been working in their respective areas for a really long time. And so I really rely on them to sometimes make decisions and push the team forward. So that's been amazing.
1: We've heard something very similar in interviews with folks at Google where they have meetings and they say, sometimes you can't even tell who's a product manager or product owner who's an engineer and who's a designer based on the conversations that they have about the product. They're so centrally product focused and experience focused that as you describe the disciplines, the walls of the disciplines start to just kind of fade away and the team really integrates. And that's kind of the holy grail of EPD, engineering product design is that it feels super integrated. But I wanna play devil's advocate. Why choose an engineer, someone with an engineering background to lead design Why not choose a designer to lead engineering?
2: And I would say, why not? That's where, for me personally, I see less of the disciplinary lines and more of just the capabilities uh, of that person. And so, if you look at somebody as as a more famous example, if you look at Tony Fidel, who is arguably the father of the iPod. It's hard to look at him and say whether he's an engineer, whether he's a designer, an inventor, an entrepreneur, he's all of these things and I think that's what makes him so unique and so special. And so and similarly at Pinterest, you know, we see the same thing. We don't really see the disciplinary lines as much. We have a lot of people that have moved between functions. We've got analysts that are now PMs, we've got designers that are PMs, engineers that are now PMs, PMs that have become designers. And so in many ways embracing that diversity of perspective is really, really awesome. And so, you know, I think if there are capable folks that come up from a technology background that then choose design, that want to go and do engineering or are designers by trade, but then have gotten really into engineering and want to lead an engineering team, I actually don't see a downside to that, but they have to be capable, right? And so I think there's more than just where they've come from. It's like, what have they done? What are the projects or teams that they've built? And how does it work, you know, at the end of the day? And there's folks on our team that actually, I would say are formally trained as designers but if you were to talk to them and look at their day-to-day work you would easily think that they were an engineer. So I can see it go in many different ways.
1: Let's dig into that capable because I think there is something you know, there's some truth to that. In my experience some of the best designers I've worked with have this cross-functional understanding like they could build an app from scratch, write code and design it as well. What does capable mean when you think about your skill set and what you bring to the design team? What is capable in your mind?
2: I think this is ever changing and evolving, right? As, as our industry evolves. But I would say today, the things that I look for that make a really great person is I always give the analogy that there's kind of two ways to think about hiring and growing talent. And one is like to look at, Very good specialists that are incredibly good at what they do. They're maybe Mm -hmm. world class at what they do, but they're great at that one thing, right? And so, Mm -hmm. if I was to take like a sports metaphor, they may be a great three point shooter, but all they can do is kind of shoot three pointers. And so, bring it back to design, somebody may be really, really great at the visual craft of design. And that's awesome. But I think what more and more, what I see the trend going to, and especially here at Pinterest and maybe even in industry, is that the ability to be a great athlete, to be able to kind of do more than just one thing is very, very valuable, right? And so Mm -hmm. not just being able to do visual design, but being able to then take that visual design and to be able to prototype interactions, to be able to bring it to life, to be able to put it in someone's hand and see what it feels like, right? It's that evolution of just visual to product design. And then to even think through, okay, well, wait, This is the design, but what should the product strategy look like? What should that be? Like, if this is how it's appearing in the application, like, what should the broader strategy be? What should be our go to market? How should we kind of brand this? And so, the DNA that I really look for is almost like this entrepreneurial designer that, um, in many ways, kind of has done it or can do it and think through all these different dimensions of building a great product. And I think you know it's harder, to, harder and harder to find as companies grow and scale because it is something that I think when you're the solo designer uh, at a startup of 10 people, you have to kind of do all these things. You have to be a jack-of-all-trades. But there is something beautiful about that, and it's something that pushes your thinking and perspective to think of all the different things that need to be done and be able to bend and flex and do those. And so I think it gives you this very holistic view on things, whether it's prototyping or design. And I think it really, it broadens your definition of design past what we traditionally think about. That's kind of the capabilities, like at a very high level, is the thing that I always lead with is trying to hire great athletes that can grow and flex and bend to do many different things.
1: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. When we spoke with Seth Godin on Design Better, he said something very interesting. Everyone's got a noise in their head. You, me, your boss, everyone. That noise in our head is self-doubt, confusion, fear, anxiety, all of that. It's part of the human experience, and it can hold us back. Therapy is one of the best ways to work through it all, to quiet the unproductive noise and develop positive mental health. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and to work with your schedule. BetterHelp can help you get the support that you need. Visit betterhelp.com slash designbetter today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash designbetter. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. It's been estimated that the average person will spend one-third of their life at work. Sobering, huh? That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. And they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the human-scale freedom chair. I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. You're going to get free shipping, free returns with free return shipping, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to UpliftDesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T DESK.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. Support for Design Better comes from our friends at CrashPlan. Visit CrashPlan.com
0: slash DesignBetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. From my daughter's first birthday to my son's first soccer game, if you're like me, you have thousands of precious family photos that only exist in digital form. That's why I've been using CrashPlan for a decade and a half now to back up all my important files. CrashPlan works efficiently in the background while you work, encrypting and sending all your new or changed files up to their secure cloud server every 15 minutes. And they make it simple to restore some or all of your data. And with unlimited version retention, CrashPlan can also be your ultimate rewind button. Businesses of all sizes benefit from CrashPlan's multi-tenant capabilities, buy as many user licenses as you need, and easily manage them all under one account. Go to CrashPlan.com slash better for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. That's CrashPlan.com slash designbetter, all one word, for 50% off your first year. Back up better with CrashPlan. So while we're on the topic of hiring, you gave the talk recently, but I think in your prior role around... Scaling a team and hypergrowth at Pinterest an engineering team. I'm wondering if you could maybe share a few of those insights. And also, is there any nuance in those with regard to hiring designers versus developers?
2: I don't remember all of the high-level bits that I touched on in that, but I think you know the the TLDR was that hiring while you're scaling through a hypergrowth company is a feat in its own. And I think it it can really influence the culture of kind of what you build how you build things, and every single person is really additive to that kind of melting pot. And so I I almost think of the analogy of like, you know, you're cooking a stew or a soup and like every sort of person you add adds a different uh, ingredient into that mix and the end result is obviously a sum of all those different parts. And so it's a tough challenge through hypergrowth because you're doing it so fast and so you have to rapidly adapt how you look for talent, how you screen for talent, and then how do you integrate them into the team right and so those are the key different areas of the hiring process but it changes very quickly if you're adding 10 people to 100 people to 1000 people and you know in a hypergrowth company those are like the scales that you're looking at maybe over like a 3 to 5 year period which is pretty crazy and so so I think you you run into a lot of challenges there and I think what I would say is like a lot of the challenges that we face On engineering and scaling that team are are very similar to design. I think obviously for us, the engineering team is a lot bigger than our design team, but a lot of the same challenges and who we look for, what is the mindset, what is the background, and this analogy of hiring great athletes is is something that we were trying to do on the engineering side as well—is try to hire folks that could design, actually engineers that maybe were, you know, the sole designer and engineer at their at their previous startup or have ai towards great user experiences because i think when you hire those people and you put them together they all really complement and balance each other really well. i think a lot of it is definitely translatable.
1: Let's talk a little bit more about surviving hypergrowth cuz it can be pretty bumpy. There's a lot of change, there's a lot of team structure change, there's personnel just like who you work with day to day can change. And even like vision and mission, um, you know the product itself can change. And maybe even more pertinent, Pinterest went through an IPO in April, which leads to a lot of change, too. How have you personally navigated the constant change inside of the organization?
2: The thing I always tell people is that change is kind of inevitable, you know, and it's change is almost like a product of success, right? And so, If you're successful, (laughs) things will change, and and in some ways, like if there's no change, a lot of times it points to you not being successful, right? And so, you know, I could recall in my early days, I was I was uh, at some of the bigger tech companies, and during that time, I think the max amount of change in like a one to two year time span was one person joining or leaving your team to go work on a different team in you know the big company, and and uh, and that wasn't that fun or exciting but you know in contrast you know my first year at Pinterest I think we went from like 10 to 100 people right and so that's a tremendous amount of change and I think that the biggest thing that I always tell people is basically to always just question what you're doing cuz what you're doing today is guaranteed just not going to work in probably 2 to 3 months and so I think it's always having that questioning and inquisitive mindset of like well how could we make this better? How could we tweak this a little bit more? And not being satisfied or complacent with the different processes or things that you're doing today. And so, as a, as a very general like example, when we were really small, you know, when you're just about 10 people at a company, and you have to talk to someone about an issue. So let's say, Eli and Aaron, we we want to get together and basically talk about how we should design the sign-up page for Pinterest. And we would basically just. Probably be at our desk and say, like, hey, let's just Mm -hmm. grab this whiteboard and and kind of jam together and we draw and we talk, and everyone it would be out in the open. Everyone can kind of hear. Sally would chime in from the side and say like I think that's a dumb idea and you know just as you scale that number by 2x and you have 20 or 30 people that idea probably doesn't work and you probably need to maybe huddle around a beanbag in a different room and then you know when you have 50 to 100 people you might have to have like send an instant message or a slack message and or send an email and so just the basic ways of communicating change in just when you factor out like a 2 to 3x increase in employees and so that just shows as an example, and that could and that happen over you know a year's period. And so it just shows like as an example in one factor of communication that you have to constantly tweak what you're doing or it's just going to break. And I think a lot of the success of hyper-growth companies is being able to see around those corners before they happen, right? Before you kind of run into a wall, being able to know that, hey, that hurdle's coming and you can kind of go around it.
0: Before the call, we mentioned we want to dive into design ops a little bit because Pinterest is certainly held up as an example of having a great design ops team, and we've spoken a lot with uh, Meredith Black. She helped us with our design ops handbook, and maybe you could talk a little bit about how design ops plays into these rapidly scaling teams and how it you know, d- decreases friction, maybe t- between design and other teams. We are
2: so lucky to have a world class design operations team here at Pinterest, and in large part thanks to Meredith pioneering the team. And for us, as we've gone through hypergrowth and scaling, we've seen the design ops team really be the arteries that connect the company and the organization. And, And that's been super important because I think when you're growing incredibly quickly, it's really easy to lose sight of all the operational things that are required to make a project or idea successful. What we've done in more recent months is actually deploy a lot of the program managers on those teams within the most complex and horizontal projects and programs across pinterest and so they're hand in hand working with creative directors and lead designers and product managers and engineering leads to really navigate how do we take what we're doing today in the roadmap and then how do we ladder it up to the vision of where do we want to go and so they're absolutely critical in like taking those teams and kind of pushing them forward towards that vision, and then as well as taking that vision and making sure that we're holding us accountable, that we're driving the right execution towards that. And so in many ways, they're the connecting tissue and the glue that's bringing the teams together to do that. And so we found tremendous value in in the DesignOps team. And And I think that's, one, that's at the product level. And then two, I would say, at the team level, they do a really fantastic job of thinking through programs that could just enable a better designer experience. And so we kind of have the team today split into two focus areas, one of which is, I would say, product-focused programs that are more focused around how do we make a better product. And so it's working on the, the big, complex, horizontal projects that span many different teams and initiatives. And then the other side of it is the designer experience. And so making sure that all of the functions within design work well together, that we're really inclusive with our process of thinking through all the different disciplines and how they come together, optimizing that process of, of how do we work together, and then thinking through what are the different ways that we can actually move faster together as a team. Uh, and so that's you know the evaluation of new tools and processes and making sure that we're constantly evolving and, and being able to see around those corners that we talked about earlier.
1: Naveen, design ops, the way that we see it, it's become a very hot topic in about the past two years. And the cause is that design teams are scaling like never before, just a couple of years. Like if we saw a team of 20 designers, that was a pretty good sized team. And now we see design teams that are commonly 100 to 150, all the way up to like, I think uh, Google has 3,200 designers at this point and might might have the, the biggest design team on the planet. I wonder, you know, coming from an engineering background, what sort of operational thinking do you bring in that perspective into the design team that might augment the existing ideas that are already in place around design ops at uh, Pinterest? How does that engineering perspective help?
2: I think the engineering background definitely helps with the operational mindset that we need as we continue to grow and scale the design team. And I think there's a few things here in particular. One is that I think you know coming from the engineering background, generally the team sizes are, are a bit bigger. And so seeing how operational problems arise at scale has been really helpful to be able to see around those corners a little bit earlier. The second area I think that's also really important is to be able to understand and empathize with other disciplines and our cross functional partners of how they're thinking about the world and the product development process that we go through every single day. And I would say on the third one, you know, and this is the one that I've spent the most time on um, since being enrolled, was that thinking through what are the ways that our design ops team could have the most impact and i think it's really easy as a team scales for a role like design operations to play much more of an administrative piece and so taking on things that people wouldn't want to do so taking meeting notes or helping schedule meetings or kind of you know more of the coordinational aspects that we would expect every leader or every designer to take on themselves. And so so it's really easy for those responsibilities to be pawned off to a design operations team. And so what I've been focused on is working with the design ops team to figure out what are the areas that they can have the most impact for the company that are closest to our development process. To give some tangible examples, some of the things that we've been looking at more recently is just the idea of design ending in visual design. And you know, something that's kind of produced as something to look at but not being interactive is something that we think is an area that design could push way further down and actually validate our hypotheses, validate our solutions much better if we're actually able to prototype. And so it's taking kind of the current process and expanding where does design begin, where does design end, how do we integrate in, and what are, what are the things that we can kind of help our cross-functional partners really think through because of our skill set. And so another area that's kind of come out of that is the real big realization for me on the engineering side was oftentimes when companies get to scale and we talk about building a new product or a feature, it's often expressed in the communication mechanism that's by discipline, right? And so product managers will gravitate towards writing this product requirement document which basically is like a long google document or a spec that basically says in writing how the product should work engineers will gravitate towards like trying to build out a crude prototype and designers will obviously gravitate towards like the visual nature of what they're used to of designing something and what i've learned over time is that for different parts of the process and in different areas of the product development process, there are things that help tremendously by seeing it through the other lens. And so, for us at Pinterest over the past six months, a lot of the vision work that we've been doing of where should we be with a product area in a year, or year and a half, is much better articulated visually because you know if you have a thousand people looking at a document they all actually think of it in a different way. They use their imagination to kind of visually think about what that could look like, what that feels like, how does a user, myself, actually interact with it. And actually articulating that visually through a design or a prototype goes way, way further than doing it in a document. And so taking that process and really understanding from a different functional perspective, what are the areas that like we can add unique value and then shifting it and changing it and working with the different teams is something that, that we've kind of done here at Pinterest um, over the past few months.
0: You mentioned vision there. What are, some, are there any artifacts that you create to help sort of transmit and distribute a vision across the company?
2: This is something I've seen done many ways, um, but I could share a few things that we do that work really well. And what I'll say is that each of these artifacts serves a slightly different purpose and a slightly different audience. And so the first is more designed around mass consumption. So for folks around the entire company, no matter what function they're in, to really understand the vision and mission of what we're building towards. And so what we do every six months is we update our three-year vision of where we think the product and company should be. And so we do this together. This is something that we involve all stakeholders across the company. So engineering, product, and design leaders get together. And we... Work on updating a set of documents that are indicative of product strategy, but also couple with data, and then finally, in cases where we can, craft a visual story of what that product can look like three years out. And you know, obviously, when you're designing and kind of putting together that visual story of something so far out, it is very aspirational and it is very visionary, and it may not even happen. But I think having the visual component of it really helps. So I would say that's the mass consumption kind of artifact that we do that's worked fairly well. And then when it comes to new products or features that we're building, there's two things that I've seen that work well. And both are really aimed to center ourselves and ground ourselves in the user problems that we're trying to solve. And so the first one, it seems kind of weird, I think, to folks. But Amazon, I think, has a really good process around writing press releases before they go out and build a new product or service. And what these press releases are designed to do is describe how the feature works. So what's the intended customer reaction when they're using it for the first time? How will the industry react? What will the product look like six to 12 months down the road in its evolution? So this is great at underscoring product strategy, the requirements that are needed, and really describing the customer feeling when they approach the product. So I think this is pretty good and and works really well when we're kind of getting off the ground. But sometimes there's still a leap to actually envision what the customer will feel when that product is built. So more and more, we've been producing what we call story decks. And story decks are just a set of visuals or prototypes that together tell the story of what that product or set of experiences should look like in the future. And it's, it's mostly visual, there's very little text, there's very little explanation. But what we found is that by seeing it in a visual form, or you know, even being able to play with it as a prototype really motivates and inspires people. It really gets people to feel that vision and it feels real, it feels achievable, it feels like it's right there and there's not too much work to be done to get there. So we've had a lot of success with that approach when building new product ideas and kind of pitching them to folks around the company. it
0: makes such sense that you guys create a you know, very visual heavy artifact given your product and your business, I think that's, that's great. You have a co-founder, Evan Sharp, who is a designer, and you've, so you've had design in your DNA from the very beginning. Maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the strategic advantages you feel that's given you, and also maybe you know there's a lot of folks working in companies out there that don't have that advantage. Are there any things that they can still learn and maybe try to infuse in their own culture, even if they don't have that design in their, in their DNA?
2: We're really fortunate to have Evan here, and Evan and I worked really closely. Actually, you know, the story I was telling earlier around, around the mobile apps, Evan and I worked on the first mobile app together as, as designer and engineer sitting right next to each other. And so Evan's been amazing for Pinterest, and I think Pinterest is a very unique company in the sense that you know, a designer is one of the co-founders. And so I think that's instilled design into the DNA of the company from day one, and so everything that we've done has always been with the user experience or design in mind. And I think that that shows in the product, right? I think I always fundamentally believe that you can kind of tell who the team is behind the product by just looking at the product. And I think that that's really helped. And so what I would say it's really helped the design team in is advocating for the importance of design, the importance of the user experience, and the difference it makes. And I think... You know, when I've talked to a lot of other design leaders at companies, one of the key challenges that I see them are kind of arriving at is, well, like, how do I advocate for the user experience against the business metrics or the bottom line that we need to drive as a company? And so I think having Evan here at Pinterest and being a co-founder at the company, he's able to really help kind of advocate and evangelize for the importance of design and the user experience and, and I, I think you know like I was saying earlier you know at the, the start of the inception of Pinterest one of our core values was knitting and this belief of bringing these disciplines together and part of that belief was actually uniquely putting the disciplines on an equal playing field and so really not having a dominant discipline at the company where engineering, leads the company or product leads the company or design leads the company, but truly like trying to level the playing field where we look at all of those different disciplines as equal. And that's a very, very difficult thing to do. And I don't think a lot of companies have been able to do that. But I think Evan's ability and having somebody being a a co-founder as a designer really, really helps with that.
1: Just building on that idea of having equal footing between engineering and design. How does that manifest organizationally? So we, we talked a bit about you know uh, your background as an engineer coming into the design team and, and building that into the mix and, and having a lot of advantages. But do you also think about the way that you structure small teams? Do you build cross-functional teams? What's the structure of those if you do have those? How do you make that play out organizationally? I
2: think what we try to do whenever we kick off a project is think about the job that needs to be done and then what are the capabilities needed to do that right and so for launching a new product there may be certain things that need to be built from a product perspective there may be certain things that need to be done from a marketing perspective there may be certain things that need to be done from a technology perspective and so we try to assemble a team that's aligned with the capabilities that needs to be done but then also i think the most important and overlooked thing is to try to understand how those different Individuals, as individuals with their number of different skill sets, can complement each other and come together to really work together to solve the end outcome, right? And then, obviously, I think out of those folks, I think the downside of having equal footing is that, you know, you still do need a decision maker. You need somebody to be the person that's going to break the tie or that's going to have the final say. And so, we try to identify who that is in that group and make it clear. Because I think that's one of the downsides to having you know such equal footing is that at the end of the day, you could end up in a situation where the three of us are sitting around and saying like, okay, well, great, we made this thing and we all have a slightly different opinion on something. Well, then who makes the final decision? And so I think it's really important to identify who kind of the final decision maker is of that group or provide an escalation path where if that doesn't happen, they know who to talk to very quickly to resolve that. So that's something we try to do when we kick off any project.
1: Do you have a sense for what the ratios tend to be in those cross-functional teams, or or does it vary?
2: It varies based on the product, but I think it's anywhere from, I would say, probably six engineers to one product designer to one product manager. That's generally like at the low end, and then at the high end, maybe it's like 10 to
1: 1. And do you have situations where you've got a lone designer in a team and they sort of feel stranded on the island because they don't, they don't have a peer that they're working directly with?
2: We try to organize ourselves into groupings where there are teams that designers work closely with in an area. And so there may be a bunch of designers that work on the core product. There may be a bunch of designers that work on advertising tools. There may be a bunch of designers that work on tools that are specific to businesses. And even though a designer may be the sole designer with a team of 10 engineers, they're working with other designers in a bigger group. And so it's never usually a case where they're on their own by themselves. And if they are, there's usually a creative director or someone that they can kind of pair with. But usually there's always somebody that they can kind of come back to, critique their work with, kick around ideas, you know, jam on and iterate on things.
0: Naveen, we usually wrap up with our guests with a, a last question about inspiration, and this doesn't have to be in the realm of design or engineering, but just what's right now is inspiring you. Whether it's a book or podcast or, or even a person,
2: I get a lot of inspiration from cooking. Actually, I, I, I really like to cook uh, when I'm not you know behind a, a digital screen, and it's fun for me. And and you know, for me, I spend less and less time every day, I feel like you know, designing and building product. And and that's like really unfortunate. And so I'm able to kind of put that creative energy out in actually cooking. And I think in, in in so many ways, it's so similar to building products and it's so similar to being able to unleash that creativity. So I get a lot of inspiration from looking at what other chefs are making and kind of take that idea but then put my own twist on it and a lot of times i'll try to challenge myself and and apply constraints of hey what is i can only cook a meal in 15 minutes what can i make or i can only use this type of method to cook something or i can only use what's in my pantry and so i try to have that be a creative outlet and i get inspiration a lot from other really really talented chefs and and there's an amazing netflix series chef's table which I think if you're a creative-minded individual, you can really start to appreciate just the thought that goes into not only the, the cooking of the recipe, but just the entire experience of how you should experience the meal. And so a lot of chefs think through that entire journey of, of from the moment the food is taken from a farm to how it's prepared – to then how it's plated and served to you, to then how you experience it in the ambiance of the restaurant. And so, so I think it's a really interesting area. And that's, that's where I look for a lot of inspiration. I look actually for a lot of inspiration outside of technology.
1: What's your go-to, like your signature dish that people know? Like if Naveen's cooking that, I want to I wanna stop by. <laughs> um, I'm pretty good at uh,
2: making pizza, and uh, and I feel like I'm a little bit of a pizza star, nice. being from New York. So yeah, pizza making is, is a big one. I have a little pizza oven, actually, that's wood fire. It gets up to, I think, like 1,200 degrees, can cook a pizza in like 45 seconds. So we do this three-day kind of dough fermentation process. But, uh, but yeah, it's something that I, I really love because pizza making and dough making is something that you can perfect and get better at over time and every, yeah. every iteration you kind of learn and, and get better and better at it
1: Naveen thanks so much for joining us this was a fascinating conversation
2: yeah thanks for having me guys it was really fun to, to chat about all stuff design and product and engineering and pizza and pizza, and pizza. <laughs> <laughs>